Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One. You know my just from Hit My History, and if you don't, shame on you. Here and today... We are going to talk about the modernization of Afghanistan. And before we start with this, I want to ask, how did you get, what inspired you to start Hikmah History? Okay, so firstly, I'd like to introduce myself. Hi, everyone. My name is Tarek. I'm the person that started um, Hikmah History, uh, like Erlen said. Uh, So in terms of how I started it, it was just, History has been a passion project of mine for as long as I can remember. Um, I always liked studying that more than any other subject uh, in, in, in school. In school. So uh, it, it wasn't very difficult for me to be able to choose that as the subject that I would move forward with. Um, in terms of Hikmah history specifically, I was just in a place in my life where I wasn't really doing that much besides going to university and I felt like things weren't really happening. So I decided to just come up with uh, the side project that I could do and dedicate some energy to. And I just, it actually started off with an Instagram page, believe it or not, uh, where I would uh, post a picture and have, have a description to the picture of a battle or a key figure and uh, from there, it kind of snowballed into me starting a blog and then into me starting a YouTube channel. And mm. um, we go to talk about the modernization of Afghanistan. And you told me that this is what you had a PhD in. So how did, how did uh, you end up with I, this? this so just this a little topic? clarification. I, have, I haven't finished my PhD. I'm two years into it. Um, so I ha- uh, but this is the, 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 the topic the modernization of Afghanistan is the topic of, of my PhD. And I want to begin with asking, what was, because I think we should stay to look at what was the state like before, before we, the modernization started, if you didn't talk about a little bit of the situation. Uh, before, well, okay, first we need to kind of periodize when Afghanistan modern, yeah. Afghanistan's modernization began. Um, obviously the most, the most um, popular dates roughly that are going to be given are going to be from the 1920s onwards. So after the reign of King Amanullah, uh, especially in the reign of the last King Zahir Shah. But you can, you can trace Afghanistan's modernization, I would say, to the middle, somewhere towards the middle of, uh, of the 19th century, around the, the reign of Shir Ali Khan um, in the 1860s and 70s. He tried to do some very basic modernization programs, for instance, uh, with a postal service and, uh, and even um, modernizing the military along European lines by giving them all a, a single uniform, 
Um, though those weren't really that successful because his reign was interrupted by the Second Anglo-Afghan War, and he died shortly after afterwards. But um, it, it really starts in the reign of Habibullah uh, from 1901 to 1919. That's when Habibullah, whose father was the Ayan Amir, Abdurrahman Khan, who's seen in history as a very cruel uh disciplinarian type figure um, when his father passed away a, bun- a bunch of people who had been exiled by his father were able to come back to the country from different parts of the world like India or uh, the Ottoman Empire and bring back the expertise that they had learned with them in, in, in their new foreign settings and um, when they came back to Afghanistan they obviously made use of, of that knowledge. So it's really in the first decade or two of the 20th century. But the st- what, so like you said, let's talk about the state. Well, what was it like in living in Afghanistan at this time, if you will? Um, what, can you specify what you mean exactly? Like how, without the modernization process and how, for, because you kind of said I think you said this in your video about this topic as well, that it was kind of a backwards country at this point in time. Right, right. Well, that word isn't a very... I I would say that that's not a great word to use because it's like... Yeah, it's it's just not... Like every country kind of, you know, progresses and develops at at its own pace. Um, But I would say maybe using the word primitive is slightly better, but... um, that's neither here nor there, I guess. Um, yeah, it was just if you if you think about it, life would have been much more basic, much more primitive. The the interconnected web that you know uh, um, the, the interconnected web of life that modernization has facilitated uh, wouldn't be there. So roads. Um, would would be few and far between, uh, like you know, well paved roads, um, communication between people from uh, far away places would not necessarily be as accessible as we would imagine today. Um, e- economies would be much more basic as well. Uh, people would have certain crafts um, or certain skills that they would um, that they would do. And they would essentially stick with that for uh, most of their lives or whatnot. Um, and and yeah, it was just a very, very rural, um, agrarian type type of life. How did Amula Khan come, come? Sorry if I said his name wrong, but how did he come to power? Amanullah Khan. Um, how did he come to power? Well, his father got assassinated in 1919, in the beginning of 1919 because and we don't know who killed him exactly but i mean if you know if i was to guess uh if i was to do uh, have an educated guess uh, it might act i might actually point my finger at amanullah khan um because in the lead up to his assassination his father had had been becoming more and more unpopular um especially with with the royal court as a result of the fact that World War One was happening, and you obviously had the Ottoman Empire siding with Germany versus 
Britain. So more and more people within Afghanistan, especially at the royal court, were calling on the Emir Habibullah, the father of Amanullah, to you know wage war on the British, try to invade India. Um, but the Emir uh, Amanullah's dad was not a fan of that. Um, he 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 wanted to remain neutral versus the British, and so he just. Um, he, he didn't go to war and you know nobody knows for sure but that's probably a very important uh contributor uh, contributory factor to his assassination um and str- to be fair actually i just yeah i should mention this amanullah didn't come to power straight after his dad um his uncle nasrullah who was the brother of his father he came to power for i think it was like a week six days and then Amanullah came through his uncle in prison and just became the emir. And yeah. How much power did the king have at this point? Was it an absolute monarchy or was it like starting to become more ceremonial thing? The, well, it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. It's the king would have been the most powerful figure in the realm by far. However... Like with any society um, that has organization, there are certain principles to abide by or certain rules. So even though the king would have been the primus rex, I think is the Latin saying, the the alpha male, he would have been careful not to, not to, um, to, to, to annoy certain factors of Afghan society. For instance, the, the tribes, certain tribal elders would have been very powerful. So it, the king would have been, the emir would have been the most powerful person, but um, he would have had to have been respectful of the power of other figures as well. So how well, where it, were Afghanistan independence? Because we, I was re-watching your video to, in order to have the topics to discuss and, uh, to this video and uh, episode. And it, just, just, did, it did seem like they weren't entirely independent. Mm, yeah, that's like a good way of putting it, is that they weren't entirely independent. Uh, basically, when the British, during the 19th century, the British and Russia had something called the Great Game. Have you have you heard of that? No. So the Great Game was this rivalry between the two powers, Britain and Russia, over Central Asia, basically mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Persia. And so um, within that context, Britain invaded Afghanistan twice in the 19th century. The second time uh, when they invaded, they made the emir, the leader of Afghanistan, sign a treaty in 1879 which basically you know stated a bunch of stuff um but one of one of the one of the terms of that treaty was that the foreign policy of afghanistan would be essentially in the hands of the of the british viceroy in india so the afghans were able to essentially do whatever they wanted inside of their country but when it came to foreign affairs that was in the hands of the British. And how did they? How did Amir feel like? Was he more of a puppet at this, or was he? How did he mm, feel about this person? So that's, that's a 
so that's the very interesting thing is that you would common sense would dictate that that Amir would be a puppet, right? Yeah. But in this case, that wasn't that that, that wasn't so um, because of what I stated previously. The British had an agreement saying you can do whatever you want in your country, but when it comes to foreign policy, you're not allowed to um, you're not allowed to have a role in this. And uh, there were times when it made it very difficult for the emir to save face in front of his people, in front of his society, um, when everybody knew that the British were in control of their foreign uh, policy. For instance, in 1907, the, the, the thing that is credited with ending the great game is the, um, what's it called, uh, the 1907 Anglo-Russian Convention, I'm, I'm pretty sure, where essentially... Britain and Russia delineate zones of influence in Central Asia, but they do not invite or ask the leaders of the country whose fate that they are determining. So Britain, oh, sorry, Persia and Afghanistan in this instance. And uh, the Afghan emir was livid. He, uh, he was very angry. He complained to the British. Um, he was going to lose face uh, in, uh, to, with his people, this is Amanullah's dad, by the way, Habibullah. And um, yeah, so it's just a very strange scenario where they're not puppets, but they, they don't have full independence. What did Britain have to gain from controlling their international ones? My bad. I should have said this. So like I said uh, um, a few questions back, the this is within the context of the great game. So... Britain was very worried and suspicious and paranoid about the Afghan ruler uh, talking to the Tsar as well. So, because that's what the Afghan ruler was essentially doing in the lead up to the first Anglo-Afghan war, where he, Dost Muhammad Khan, he was playing off the, the Russian Empire versus the British Empire to get a favorable deal. Kind of like what the Afghans would do a hundred years um, uh, later in the Cold War between the Soviet Union and America. Mm. Play off two superpowers to get a favorable deal. Um, and the British, because Afghanistan had a border, shared a border with India, and India was, you know, quote unquote, the cash cow of the British Empire, the British would act very uh, aggressively when it came to matters of India. If anything, um, if anything, uh, harmed their position in India, in the in British India, then the British would act very, very aggressively. And one of those aggressive acts was to force the Afghan Emir to uh, to concede his his foreign policy, his country's foreign policy. And we have to remember that this is also before Pakistan exists as a country. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So the British didn't want the Afghans to talk to the Russians. Um, so they just took their foreign policy. <laughs> Did they have a good relationship with Russia, the Afghanistan, Afghans people and the Afghan government? Uh, um, it wasn't bad uh, necessarily, um, but they were foreigners. I mean, so it's not like it was anything special because, I mean, similar to the British, I know it's different sects of Christianity. They were not Muslims. They're still Christians, you know, they're... Um, 
Orthodox Christians, the the, the Russians. So uh, you have to take that into consideration. Um, but yeah, it wasn't anything special. It was the same as what their relationship with the British was like. But then the British one got worse, by the way, obviously, because they went to war with them three times. Mm. So I will try. I'm going to try what to start and modernize Afghanistan and. Mm. How does it do this? How does it start modernizing? How does it get the economy to modernize the country? So that's the thing. He didn't have the economy to modernize the country. And that's why, well, not why, but it's a key reason why I failed. It's a key reason why modernizing in Afghanistan is very difficult in the first place, because it requires a lot of funds, funds that are not necessarily there in place, right? Mm-hmm. So he... Um, so his modernization plan obviously he most likely would have wanted it to be very comprehensive however because of the lack of funds and resources available to him it was quite um focused meaning for instance in the education sector uh, what he does is he sets up three schools in Kabul the capital a German-speaking school, a English-speaking school, and a French-speaking school where he sends um, basically a bulk of the curriculum would have been taught at those schools in the respective European languages. And once people graduated from those schools, they would have an opportunity to go um, study abroad in those respective countries and then obviously come back to Afghanistan with things that they had learned so that they can be implemented in the hope of moving Afghanistan forward. So in terms of uh, in terms of uh, Amman Allah's modernization plans he in in his reign there isn't very much for him to show for it if you see what I'm saying like there wasn't huge industrialization um, uh, programs. Uh, There wasn't a huge uh, agrarian uh, programs taking place like we see in Soviet Union um, like a a decade later. But the the biggest thing that Amanullah contributed in this regard was what I just said, the three schools. Uh, Because the people that went to those schools um, during Amanullah's reign, obviously they were not of age. Because uh, I think those schools went up until about the, they were lycées, which is like French for high school, I think. So I'm guessing around 16 or maximum 18. Um, and those people came of age in the 30s. So then uh, a bunch of civil servants that you see in Afghanistan who aid the modernization of the country as bureaucrats, um, etc., they were taught in the 1920s in these European language modern schools. Was this a good idea, do you think? Or was it was this the right thing to do, putting up these three schools, sending them abroad to these, like you said, respective countries? Was this, did this work out the way he thought it out to be? Or did it um, I think, no, I think in terms of Aman Allah's uh, modernization, uh, plan let's call it that was probably the best element of it 
uh, in every sense of the word, um, in terms of the practical benefits, it, it, it bore Afghan society, um, in terms of how little resistance there was to this, as opposed to some of his other um, elements of modernization, for instance, when it came down to clothing or women, um, the way in which the negative way in which Afghan society, huge chunks of Afghan society reacted to that. Clearly, that was not a very smart political move to make because it raised the enmity of powerful, but also very large segments of Afghan society. So, And that's partially what led to him um, being forced off the throne in 1929. And who takes over after Amanullah Khan and what happens then? So Amanullah in 1928 went on a nine-month journey. From, uh, it's mainly through Europe, but he goes to Egypt and places like this as well. Um, and he comes back. And the whole point of the journey was to go and in, in a similar spirit to what I mentioned earlier with the students, to bring back knowledge that can be implemented in Afghanistan and um, yeah so when he comes back towards the end of 1928 his modernization he starts um, talking publicly about the things he had seen and his vision for Afghanistan and this vision of Afghanistan was much more aggressive let's say uh, in the pace in which he wanted to pursue it and um, like I said, it wasn't very popular with, uh, with uh, a significant portion of, of Afghanistan. And so there are tribal revolts uh, in the east of the country uh, with the Shinwari tribe. And then around Kohistan to the north of Kabul with a man named Habibullah Kalakani, who eventually becomes the new emir. But he is only emir for, I believe, eight months, maybe nine months. Because another uh, person from the royal family by the name of Nadir Shah, who was a cousin of Amanullah, he um, raises an army and basically takes on Habibullah Kalakani and defeats him, executes him, and then he becomes king from in 1929. And then what happens? Um, and then, so very importantly, um, so... Nadir Shah, he is a quite a cautious man. However, he was born and raised in British India. So he would have had quite a modern education. Um, and he mixed those two together, which is a very fascinating, very interesting blend, if you ask me. Because his military background gave him some sort of a conservative outlook at the pace of change so when he came into power he gave interviews to european journalists where he talked about he openly talked about how the things that amanullah wanted to bring about were not necessarily wrong but it's just the pace at which he moved at uh, the pace of his modernization plan it was just far too quick and far too ambitious. Mm -hmm. So um, having said that, first thing he does is he more or less reverses everything that Amanullah wanted to do 
in terms of the uh, societal changes that were very unpopular. Things to do with women, things to do with religion. He just unwinds the clock. Uh, but with the education side of it and the military modernization side of it, he doesn't rewind the clock. He he gets behind, he throws his weight behind that, which is a very smart move politically, if you think about it, because Afghans were not necessarily against the idea of modernizing when it came to material things such as I want a better road or I want um, you know just material things um, a better car or they didn't necessarily have cars but like uh, better shoes things of these nature um, they, they didn't necessarily have any qualms with this kind of a modernization but when it came to societal slash cultural modernization of uh, having to move away from certain traditions or having to uh, infuse certain new ideas that were at loggerheads with uh, customs that you have respected and celebrated for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. That is the thing that Afghans or most uh, most of Afghan society was very hesitant about. So Nader Shah very adroitly, very smartly recognized that. So um, he didn't play around with things that would have necessarily um, provoked Afghan society, like the, tra- the, the traditional elements of it. Um, and he just more or less focused on slowly but surely extending the authority of the central government by central, uh, through centralization and at the same time focusing on military modernization. Mm. And yeah. what about Abdullah Khan when he, he gets replaced? What happened? You said he worked around Europe, but what happened? What when he come? Does he come back at some point? And what? No, no. To- so there's like all throughout the 1930s, Nader Shah and his family they're super paranoid that Amanullah might come back because Amanullah had very, um, very strong support amongst a, a certain sector in society, which was that sector which was young, which was hungry for political change, and they might have tasted some of the consequences of those uh, reforms in education that Amanullah had brought brought in. So among certain university students, he was very, um, very popular. And Nader Shah's family is quite paranoid about that. But no, for the, yeah, Amanullah dies some thir- three decades later, in Rome, I believe. I think it's Rome, yeah. Uh, he just stays in exile um, until 1962. And of course, a very famous person which we all probably heard of, a certain Adolf Hitler comes to power. And mm. why? And Afghanistan chose to side with Nazi Germany. Why is that? Why did they choose to side with Adolf That's Hitler? That's a great Adolf question. Hitler? That's a great question because because Hitler, the Nazis, World War II, Holocaust, anything related to that, to that kind of subject matter, has such a strong grip on Europe and even America. To be fair, America's conscien- consciousness that uh, it's tough to have. Maybe in academia it's changing a little bit, but it's tough to have mature discussions about this because when you th- when you say what you just said and what you said is correct, by the way, um, 
Afghanistan's government in the 1930s decided to side early on, before the war sparked off, with Nazi Germany. Um, and, and that's because of their experience with the other side. So who's on the other side? Um, Britain, France, yeah, mainly Britain and France, right? So, I mean, Brit- France, they're a little further away from Afghanistan. I don't think France had any colonies that were all that close to Afghanistan. I don't know if our uh, Philippines are from Afghanistan. No, they're very far from Afghanistan. Mm. You, you probably need like a 12-hour flight mm. to get from Afghanistan. Yeah. But but Britain, Br- Afghanistan had very um, had a very traumatic experience or traumatic experiences because uh, they had three wars with Britain. So it wouldn't have made sense for Afghanistan to be buddy-buddy with Britain because... I mean, it, they got their hands burnt three times. They they finished fighting for independence from the British only 14 years before Adolf Hitler becomes um, chancellor. So it wouldn't make any sense. Mm. But I should mention, I should mention that when World War II started, Britain, uh, and I'm sure Soviet Union did the same thing, they essentially gave an ultimatum to the Afghan government you can't be on the side of the Nazis. If you are, we're going to essentially invade you. You're at war with us. So if you have any Nazi or uh, Italian, fascist Italian diplomats in your country, you have to ask them to leave. Mm. Um, And the Afghan government was uh, more than willing to oblige, considering what happened to Iran. Did they choose to stay neutral during the war or did they help try to support... Afghanistan? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. They, they, they basically obliged what Britain asked from them. So technically, they're not fully neutral, but uh, they were neutral in the sense that there was no fighting mm. done uh, by Afghans. Yeah. And then the war ends and the Soviet Union, and of course, we know how the war ends. We don't have to go through that part. But... What that, something happens with Afghanistan and they decide to kind of try to play off both sides, the Soviet Union and America, if I yeah. remember this correctly. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what made them realize that, think that this could be a good idea that we're going to try, that this can't work out? Because obviously it doesn't go their way. And what made them right. think that it was a good idea to play off both sides, both Afghanistan and America? The, we have to rewind a little bit. So yeah. one of the most important things, and this is going to sound kind of funny, but one of the most important things in, Afghan, in, in, in Afghanistan's history in the 20th century was World War II. And I, it's going to sound mm. funny because they were not actually involved in it. But basically, the war put such a tremendous strain on Afghan society as a result of food prices going up, um, just prices across the board going up um, in Afghanistan's economy, that it something triggered in the, in the mindset of those running Afghanistan that what they had to do after the war was, had to be a little bit more radical than before the war and radical in the sense of how they approached the question of change and reform the speed at which 
they they could have change and reform because obviously prior to 1939 10 years before that Amanullah was in charge and he was getting kicked out of the country because people were saying that you want reforms and change too quickly so when Nadir Shah and his son Zahir Shah from 1933 onwards when they came to power they made sure to not annoy Afghan society, the tribal and traditional elements of it, which make up the huge bulk of it. Um, but then when World War II finished, they realized how, how vulnerable they were to the world. Um, they realized the great scope of power that these states have with dropping nuclear bombs, with having armies that have multiple millions uh, of soldiers so afghan um the afghan status quo in charge of the country they decided that it's a matter of survival not a matter of um opinion uh, w- regarding how quickly they need to um reform and how quickly they need to modernized so they just threw all of their eggs in in one basket and decided that in order for them to survive in order for them to to be a viable state within this international fraternity they they needed to modernize as quickly as possible and um and one of the ideas that they had was to play the two uh, superpowers off each other um and obviously with hindsight it's very easy to say to sit here and say oh that was such a you know uh, non um foolish move because look at how it, ended it up. did it make sense at a time that this was a good idea uh absolutely absolutely because it provided um very real benefits um because when this is happening erland mm-hmm. um post world or two from say like 1945 to the Vietnam War. There is this idea out there floating about in the minds of American policymakers called developmentalism. Have you heard that before? No, I don't think so. All right. So developmentalism is essentially where you think that, um, not you think, but you, 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 you focus on trying to help other countries, third world countries around the world um, uh, become more modernized through developmental projects such as the construction of dams, the construction of roads, um, something that helps aid them in their attempt to become uh, industrialized or modern. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. So... When the Cold War is going on and uh, the Soviet Union and America are essentially auditioning for the rest of the world's support, Mm. uh, one tool that America had at their disposal, and to be fair, the Soviet Union did the same thing, was they would go to countries that were, say, neutral and say, hey, be our friend, we will give you $50 million dollars in aid money mm. to help build you an airport. Who says friends who says friends can't be bought, eh? Exactly. That's literally yeah, what's happening. So uh Soviet Union would go to the the Afghan royal family in the 1950s, say, hey, we'll give you a hundred million dollars uh to build and we'll help you by the way with 
Soviet engineers to build a dam and an airport. And so the Afghan uh, elites would go to the Americans and say, hey, you know, the Soviets are offering us 100 million for this. The America, do you want to, you know, give us a counter offer, like a proper free market, right? Yeah. Free market economics. And the Americans might, you know, give more to, to, to ensure that they stay on their side as opposed to the other side. Um, so it had a very real consequence in boosting up the, uh, the, yeah, even the standard of living, to be honest, but just the overall modernization of the country, because we're talking about huge numbers, like from 1950, I have my notes in front of me, from 1950 to 1965, Afghanistan applied for and received more than $80 million in loans from the Export-Import Bank. Uh, 1955, Soviet Premier Khrushchev rolled out uh, more than $100 million in credit that would facilitate Soviet engineers to, to construct airports, dams, factories, and highways. So these are going to have very real consequences on um, Afghanistan's infrastructure. So it obviously benefited uh, Afghanistan. Was this a prosperous time for Afghanistan when they brought all these offers from both sides? Would you say? Mm, prosperous prosperous is a very relative term because if you're if like Erland you're, you're situated in Norway right yeah and I'm situated in the UK if you compare 1950s Afghanistan to you know today's Norway yeah. or today's UK it's definitely not prosperous it was poverty stricken however if you compare 1950s Afghanistan to 1910s Afghanistan then yeah it would have been a much better um it would have been much better i don't know about prosperous but roads are being constructed you're seeing the emergence of um uh of a fully functioning uh, airport so, uh, in the 60s i think there's a second one in kandahar um and the modern education there's a university Uh, students some of the most gifted students are having scholarships abroad and they're coming back with you know far better knowledge than they would have had access to in afghanistan so it was a time that afghans today look at as say the last you know kind of like a lost golden age type type of scenario mm. uh because on the it was definitely prospering and it was modernizing It wasn't prosperous or modern, um, but there was also uh, the rule of law was pretty strong because the royal family. Remember when I when I said that after Amanullah Nadir Shah focused on mm. extending his government's authority across the country. Remember, yeah, that by the 50s and 60s that really starts to bear fruit, because if you look at Afghanistan topographically it is very hard to it's very hard to rule the whole country because there's you know just there's there's huge mountains you've got to build roads through the mountains there's deserts there's all of this stuff so communication is very tough um and by the 1960s the hard work and the diligence of the of of the government um was was bearing fruit like i said was there a certain hope in the country that this is gonna end well this is gonna go we're gonna make it we're gonna become, gonna become maybe not a first world country but we're gonna become 
better? Was there hope in among people of Afghanistan oh, at this time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, abs- absolutely. Um, absolutely. I have to be careful because I don't want to talk out of um, pocket uh, because that's not necessarily my the focus of what I study. However, uh, it, what I do, st- what I study, does touch upon that. Um, there was definitely a sense of patriotism about the country. You would have students that go abroad and study in America, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in all these places. And um, if they wanted to, of course, humans can be very uh, creative creatures. If they wanted to, they probably could have found a way to stay in those countries, you know, um, Mm. to defect kind of like what Cuban athletes do when they go compete uh, internationally. They'll just go and stay in the country and defect. Um, but that that wasn't really happening with these students. They would more or less, not all the time, but a lot of the time, they most of the time rather, they would come back to Afghanistan and more so than anything to me, that speaks about patriotism, about having some sort of a, a hope in the Loyalty. country. Loyalty, exactly. But more so kind of what you alluded to with your question, uh, a sense of hope that the country is moving in the right direction. Um, because there was, it was a very dynamic time uh, in Afghan society. Uh, huge changes were taking place uh, on a political level because uh, these modern schools, whilst they created engineers, doctors, um, diplomats, they also created, you know, ideologues and politicians who came up and started you know, entertaining new ideas, uh, new ideologies, such as communism, um, such as democracy. Yeah, uh, I, I want to talk about uh, this. Uh, there's uh, the downside, rather, if that's the correct term for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they did come back from America and the Soviet Union, which was, you know, the two major powers at the time, they did have different ideologies. So mm. talk, let's talk about how this changed Afghanistan for in the into the modern state of we know now it does today. Let's do it. Let's let's do it. That's a that's a very pertinent pertinent subject matter because you're right, especially with the Soviet Union side of things, when the Soviet Union was on good uh, relation was it had good relations with uh, Afghanistan and there was this back and forth of students traveling to the Soviet Union for training and education. This did happen where the students came back and they became, or at least superficially, espoused communism. So many of the people that became the the leaders of the Afghan Communist uh, Party, the PDPA, later on in the 70s and 80s, they had actually trained and studied abroad in the Soviet Union. Uh, earlier maybe in the 50s 60s or 70s so you definitely do see that precedence um at the same time you get uh, a group uh, certain people within the, the political elite that would like greater democracy and these uh, this group is supported by young university students and so what eventually happens is <clears throat> Uh, in 1963, 
the king is essentially says, I am going to properly take over and run the country. Because for the 30 years before that, Erland, yeah. uh, the king was obviously, you know, the person in charge of the country, but he had quite, he didn't um, have full executive authority across the board, or he didn't exercise executive authority across the board, I should say. For the first 20 years of his reign, up until 1953, uh, that was in the hands of his uncles. Uh, he had four uncles, well, three later. Uh, and uh, then from 53 to 1961, 1962, that was in the hands... Wait, was it 1961 or 19... Um, I think it's 1960. Oh no, it's 1963. Sorry. So 1953 to 1963, um, it's his cousin uh, Dawood, who spoiler alert is going to be the person who topples the monarchy in 1973 and establishes a republic. But he was quite an iron-fisted type ruler, and um, when the king asked him, his own cousin, to step down in 1963. The following year, you have something called uh, the Constitution, Afghanistan's Constitution of 1964, where the king basically says we are going to have some sort of a constitutional monarchy. Uh, there's going to be elections, there's going to be parties, uh, the king is going to stay in charge, however, uh, he will elect um, a prime minister, which by the way was going to be uh, was not going to be a member of the royal family, so that's a huge deal. And what that basically did, Ireland, is um, it made it it really excited uh, these different political parties uh, with their different ideologies. Wasn't it at this? Wasn't it at this time as well that he allowed freedom of speech and freedom of the Very press nice. as well? Very nice. So I was just about to get onto that because. When, when these elections and just this, this greater freedom in the political sphere was announced, um, it created a lot of excitement, a lot of nervous excitement. Um, and it had quite a negative effect uh, on the Afghan political sphere um, because to go hand in hand with these new elections, with all these, with the new constitution, etc. Like you mentioned, there was going to be freedom of press. So these political parties would have certain newspapers that were essentially the, um, what's the word for it, the term, uh, the mouths of of their of their polit- like uh, of their ideologies. So th- that strengthened divisions within uh, politics between, say, communists, uh, between those who were pro-monarchy, etc. And um, it obviously had very negative consequences because things get so chaotic that in 1973, um, Dawood Khan, the person who was president from 53 to 63, just realizes that there is so so much chaos that he comes and topples the monarchy even though funnily enough he is part of the royal family and he establishes a republic uh under his iron fist is this where tini started the run that we see 
things go not just not go in the right direction? Uh, I think it would that that's a little bit earlier because I think all of that stuff happened in the 1960s. Uh, obviously, this this is what we're talking about. Discussions of this nature, they are they're a process. So you can't. It's not fair to say, oh, it was this year or mm. that event, etc. But it's really in the what they what's called the constitutional decade. 63 to 73 that these issues started really coming to the surface um bec- yeah um because as the communists are becoming more powerful it has this effect that afghanistan is quite a religious country as i'm sure you know Th- there is a certain there a new political strand pops up um almost in a reactionary sense to the the rising power of the communists within Afghanistan, which is the Islamic fundamentalists, who don't like what they see uh, in terms of how the Afghan communists are getting more and more power. So they become more politically active from the late 1960s onwards um, as a as a response to the communists. Because the communists, to be fair, were having. I mean, nobody really handled themselves. Uh, with a lot of dignity uh, on the political level but the communists were especially bad in this sense because they they would have they had certain tactics where um, for instance uh, just riling up young university students to to call strikes or to call protests or to uh, prevent entry to the house of parliament uh, for 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 the um, MPs, um, so these kind of um, tactics were used um, to create like these kind of uh, obstructionist tactics were used uh, in a you know to create greater chaos. I guess well, I don't really know what their aim was essentially, um, but yeah, like just in the 1960s alone. There was more than 2,000 strikes, demonstrations, and protests by the students of Kabul. Um, yeah. Hmm. And I, mean, I know you don't have much time, so we're going to have to try to wrap things up soon. But I want to mention the Soviet invasion as well. So why, what, since they seem to, you mentioned that they seem to have rather good relations with Soviet Union and Afghanistan. So what makes Soviet Union decide that we don't go invade Afghanistan? Well, so like we've been talking about, the um, with with there being Afghan communists and them rising in prominence, they well, I have to back, I have to uh, have to take a step back. Yeah. So not only not only Ireland were there Afghan communists in uh, becoming prominent uh, on a political level. Uh, because of uh, political parties they were establishing or um, newspapers that they that they were creating, there were also, and this is a, actually a significant part of it, a bunch of military officers in the Afghan army were trained in the Soviet Union and they would have been influenced by you know communist ideas and they would have empathized with communist ideas and call themselves. Uh, communists but they were uh, 
lodged in the Afghan army in key positions. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, the uh, like, I'm trying to build a picture for you because mm. you're getting uh, communist journalists, essentially, communist ideologues, communist politicians, and communist military officers. Uh, that is quite a significant, quite an important group of people that are coming together. So you, so uh, you would say that the majority of people that came back from studying abroad were communists that had studied in the Soviet Union or compared to the Western world, like America, Britain, and Germany, wherever? Um, no, I don't think that's fair to say. I don't think that's fair to say because you've got to remember, Erland, with history, all you need is one person. Like, mm. of course, we're all equal, but historically speaking, some people have had a greater impact yeah. than other people. Like, uh, I mean, Genghis Khan has had a greater impact on human society than my great great uncle. Like, no Absolutely, offense, yeah. To my great, yeah, no offense, <laughs> to my great great uncle. But it's just it is what it is. So, it doesn't necessarily have to be low, like numer- a numerically high number. It could just be ten guys mm. that are just very prominent in their sectors um and they they make huge waves of change but essentially to get back to your original question 1973 the uh the monarchy is toppled by somebody who funnily enough is from the royal family uh, pre- pre- uh former president Dawood khan he uh recruits the communists to help him take power essentially, in 1973. Then the president realizes that the communists are getting pretty strong and that he just doesn't like their outlook. Uh, So he tries to get rid of them uh, in terms of not giving them important positions in power. The communists see this. They don't like it. They, They organize a coup amongst themselves with because uh, remember they've got very important high-ranking military officers mm-hmm. uh, part of their party and uh, they execute that that coup uh 28th of april i think uh 1978 uh it's called the sour revolution and um that's what brings them to power and mm. um, what is i don't know if this is the right way to put it but would you kind of say that the modernization of Afghanistan is sort of a Shakespearean tragedy. <laughs> what do you mean? Like it's it doesn't end well, and we see the situation in Afghanistan right now. And I don't know if I haven't studied at the point of view, but like you see, it's not great to put it that way, for the lack of a better word. Right. So, um, would you say it's a tragedy? Tragedy in a sense. You can definitely think of it as that. I never thought about it like that, but I guess you can think about it as a tragedy from the perspective that they're going through... It's a country where they know they need to modernize. Forget about, uh, you know, really lofty, moral, cool reasons. Literally just for survival purposes, they know they need to modernize in a globalizing community, right? Mm -hmm. But... That that endeavor is is getting in the way of them doing it. Like the f- the fact that they are so hell bent on trying to modernize, like the whole issue around modernization mm. is so prominent that it leads to uh, the greatest um, 
roadblocks and obstacles uh, that prevent that from happening in the first place. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, because you'll get rulers. For instance, you'll get a variety of different rulers. You'll get rulers that um, really want change to happen quickly because they're super worried about being left behind by every other country out there. Yeah. And the society will go, no, 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 you're going too quick. Then you get rulers that go really slowly and then things will happen on the international scene like World War II that will make the rulers realize, wow, we are so weak and primitive. Mm. We need to go faster. We need to modernize faster. Um, and then you get rulers like the communists who uh, have their own vision on how to modernize and make themselves stronger. But that is at loggerheads with the wide majority of Afghan society um and obviously that doesn't work either so it's just it's a really um well it's not actually that tricky but people like most things in life people make it trickier than it has to be who would you say in your mind it's just trying to, to, to probably a broad question but who do you think had the right idea to mod, to the modernization program uh that's i like that question i love questions like this um it would it would be another show why is that well because remember i told you that when he came to power in 29 he gave interviews to european journalists and he said modernization is not wrong it's all about the pace for me Mm. that's what it's all about it's all about the pace because when you all right so this is going to sound kind of complicated and convoluted but just give me a moment alan yeah so afghanistan's problem is that it's a it's like a double problem and it's a it's, it is quite complicated in the sense that it needs to modernize 100% otherwise it dies but it has to modernize in a certain type of a way mm. so if it modernizes too quickly it you know annoys too many people who think that their culture and traditions are being eroded but at the same time if it modernizes too slowly we have the same problem we talked about earlier where it dies other countries will modernize quicker than you and you'll just be left behind. Mm. So but you, ha- you have to think about this problem deeply. So if you modernize really quickly, yes, it will allow you to uh, keep up with the rest of the world and not die in that respect. However, the pace at which you bring the change will naturally f- make it very difficult, Erland, to keep your eye on every little um, consequence that happens as a result of those changes. Like, for instance, with communism, um, where the Afghan royal family most likely did not think to themselves when they were sending out uh, students to the Soviet Union in the 40s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Well, by the 60s, maybe they did. By the 40s and 50s, oh, 20 years later, these lot are going to topple a government and start a coup. It's an unintended side effect that happens. But the slower you have modernization, the easier for you to be able to judge what the unintended side uh, side effects are going to be. But the problem with that is that you might die because your neighbors might take uh, become way stronger than you. Um, with Nadir Shah, his, his whole outlook, I think, was very smart in the sense that I'm not going to touch what I like to call cultural modernization, social or cultural modernization. Like whatever values, whatever traditions this society has, I'm not going to touch that. 
even if the rest of the world tells me that chopping people's hands off is wrong, I don't want to annoy my people. So mm. you can keep that. However, when it comes to things like material modernization, getting better cars, better roads, better airports, better planes, better dams, um, just just better headphones, better accessories, better everything, better houses, I'm going to throw the full weight of my focus onto that. And that's very smart because not only do Afghans not mind that, Afghans would support you because Afghans are, at the end of the day, I know this might sound funny, humans. And humans, in general, they want to improve their lot in life. Um, so I think that's why Nadir Shah was, very, uh, was a very capable ruler. Yeah, he understood his people. He understood his people. He, he realized we can't do this too quickly, even though it's, it would help us if we, on one level, it would help us if we did this quickly. But um, at the same time, we need to have a proper game plan because even after World War II, that kind of modernization, you know, it's not really that smart. I mean, to because they basically, Erland, we skipped past one other episode. Yeah. Um, there's two episodes of democracy. So one of them we mentioned, the constitutional decade, 63 to, 60, to 73, basically. And then there's one where it's for like, say four years well it's really like two years 1949 no 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 1947 to 1951 um but you can extend it to 53 as well where they they uh, the afghan royal family allow parliamentary elections to take place um and freedom of uh of, of uh, not of speech sorry freedom of press happens then as well but the exact same thing happens it's just chaos anarchy people start talking about crazy ideas like hey maybe we shouldn't have a monarchy in the first place and the monarchy is like wait 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 we this is not what we meant when we said you can have freedom of speech mm-hmm. um so it's freedom of speech but not free freedom of sorry freedom of press but not freedom of yeah. press yeah exactly it's what it is is that what you need to have is common sense and i know mm-hmm. that sounds really strange because it's very subjective and it is but I don't think that Afghanistan and I would love to see hear somebody argue differently to this but not take the moral high ground type of approach which is very fashionable nowadays mm. um, I don't think countries like Afghanistan maybe even any country you could argue could have an uninhibited uncontrolled unrestrained modernization plan that just goes let's just modernize everything i think it would be way smarter for people to come together and come up with a plan that is congruent to that society that is in line with their values and moves at a pace which is comfortable Mm. seemingly comfortable because being in your comfort zone is not a great thing either Mm. um to those people just say all right Here's freedom of press, here's freedom of speech, here's democracy, here's uh, these rights, those rights. All at the same time, it's like, dude, I've never really had these. What am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, <laughs> makes sense, yeah. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you on. And before you go, do you have anything you wish want to promote? Any social media you wanted to plug in the description? Before I do that, I want to thank you, Erland. Uh, this was awesome. Uh, I love talking about I mean, 
uh, Afghan history. Uh, but yeah, yeah in terms of mine. plugging, that's great to hear. In terms of plugging, uh, just check out Hikma History YouTube channel. We've got a bunch of new content coming up. Uh, been very active in terms of Afghan history recently on my YouTube channel. So if you guys are interested, mm-hmm. check that out. Besides that, social media, Instagram, Twitter, I'm pretty active on as well. Uh, Hikma History. So check that out. Thank you so much for coming. This has been Wadat as well. Next week, we will take a look at the British military in the 16th century with Stephen Gunn. Until Amanimus Alan, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. And I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.